Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. One of the first things that armies do at the start of a war is to try and cut off their opponents' lines of communication. Interrupting the flow of information between an enemy's generals and its battlefield has obvious tactical benefits. Soldiers won't know what to do. Modern internet-connected weapons will become less effective. And in today's highly digitized society, broken communications have consequences beyond the battlefield too. In Ukraine, people have been forced to reckon with these questions ever since their country was invaded by Russia last month. But despite enduring physical and electronic attacks, Ukraine has managed to stay online and connect to the outside world. How the country has managed this is a story of technologies both old and brand new, and a big helping of homemade ingenuity. Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist science correspondent. Today we'll explore how Ukrainians are managing to stay connected to each other and to everyone else beyond, as their country comes under attack. This war, perhaps more visibly than any before it, is being fought online. We'll look at Ukraine's use of social media from the front line, and also how citizens in Russia are standing up to the widespread digital crackdowns in their country. But first... Destroying your opponent's ability to communicate is an elementary military tactic. It's something that Russia seems to be ramping up at the moment. On March the 28th, Ukra Telecom, one of Ukraine's largest telecoms companies, was hit with one of the most disruptive cyber attacks of the war so far, blocking most of its users' access to the internet. With me to assess the ongoing situation in Ukraine is Benjamin Sutherland, who writes about science and technology for The Economist, and he specialises in security issues. Ben, it's great to have you here. Can you just tell me what's at stake? What would happen if Ukraine's communications infrastructure went down? Well, actually a lot. In fact, one thing that you find is once a population becomes cut off from the outside world, morale falls. Populations that get cut off from information from the outside world, you can imagine they're traumatized, they don't know what's going on, and they become extremely vulnerable to fake news, rumors. And uh, we have plenty of reports coming out of Ukraine that essentially that is what is happening. In fact, I spoke with uh, a former economy minister who lives in uh, Lviv, his hometown in the western part of Ukraine. 
And he described it as essentially a one-two punch information blackout and then fake news. And that's kind of become standard procedure for what Russia is doing. Now, people are talking about Russia perhaps cutting off the internet to Ukraine. And I, I wonder how that would work. I mean, is that even possible? Well, that yeah. In fact, if you go back to the roots of the Internet, part of the idea was that you wanted an information network that would be so resilient that, in theory, it could even withstand nuclear war. You, you knock out certain nodes, but the information takes a more roundabout way and eventually gets to its destination. What we see in practice is the ability of an Internet configuration or architecture, as experts call it, to withstand attacks kind of depends a lot on, on how decentralized it is. And generally, the more authoritarian the country is, the more centralized the structure of the Internet is. Now, there are some exceptions. Russia has been becoming much more authoritarian, but its Internet architecture is actually still fairly diversified just because of historically how it developed with a lot of different companies, Internet service providers competing for business and setting up parts of the network. That's a similar situation as in Ukraine. And so the architecture of the Internet, thankfully, in Ukraine is pretty decentralized and it's been holding up pretty well. About 78% of all the devices that were connected to Ukraine's internet on the eve of the invasion are still connected. You know, some of those that were lost were lost due to refugee outflows. A lot of them have been lost due to kinetic attacks, some to cyber attacks. But the situation isn't as dire as a lot of people were speaking, at least in, in parts of the country that are not Mariupol or Kharkiv or other cities that have been encircled and, and just benighted, if you will. Talk to me a bit more about Ukraine's infrastructure. Um, give me some of the reasons why the Ukrainian internet has been seemingly so resilient? Well, part of it is the way it developed over recent decades was with a lot of different companies setting up their own infrastructure. So there's fewer choke points, if you will, that could be taken out. But there's a couple other factors that are relevant. One of them is the uh, internet service providers and even groups of volunteers, IT techies, volunteers, are working around the clock heroically, sometimes in very dangerous environments, in order to reconnect and repair damaged infrastructure. Another factor is that the government has temporarily provided unused spectrum to telecom providers so that they can reduce congestion and, and use this unused spectrum if needed. Another factor is that a lot of telecoms and internet service providers have decided to not disconnect people who are not paying their bills due to the extraordinary circumstances. And is it also true that the Russian soldiers as, as well are leaving some parts of the network alone because perhaps they need to use it to communicate with each other? Yes, in fact, that's a good point. There's kind of two aspects to that. One is that the Russians are using it for targeting. And so the idea is if there's a certain part of the network that's providing good information, for example, one thing they'll be looking for, no doubt, would be uh, spotters. It's one thing if someone sends a text message saying, I see some army trucks. It's another thing if someone says, I see uh, four T-79 tanks with damaged treads, and it looks like one of them is out of gas. That kind of information could get you identified and geolocated, and, and you might become you know, a target for an artillery strike. Um, so they're using it for targeting. It should be said that Ukrainians are also doing the same thing, and the reason is that Russia's military comms gear is not working very well. 
We also have reason to believe that it's in some units don't have enough of it. It's fairly scarce, but we also know it's not working. And the reason is we have examples of high-ranking generals actually using regular telecoms to make calls. So unencrypted, it, unencrypted phones. Exactly, on unsecured lines. And they wouldn't be doing that if their military-grade comms gear were actually working. That's so remarkable. It's, it's not just a question of shortages. It's also underperforming. But tactics change, and we have no... We don't know how long they're going to keep doing that, and, and if they switch over to an even more kind of raise-it-to-the-ground approach, they may do that, and, and we may see even darker days. Well, let's talk about the future. We, we, yeah. It's a month into this war. How are people in Ukraine preparing for a much larger loss of connectivity? Because that's, that's bound to happen at some point. So one thing you have is people trying to figure out how to set up backup battery systems. Um, because obviously, if the power goes out, eventually your batteries are going to die. Um, I spoke with a certain Yuri Vasyuk, who runs a store in Kiev called Island. It's a computer store. And he's been working with friends to help convert electric batteries for electric vehicles into what they call power walls or DIY power balls. Regarding this topic, I know that makers are working on power banks from secondhand lithium polymer batteries from all Tesla and Nissan cars, from old and brand new. So people manufacturing small power banks for the uh, possible blackout situation. How do you um, modify an electric car battery to make a, a good power bank? How do you do it? You have to remove battery cells from big pack of battery from electric car. Then if you have to test all the batteries because they degraded, uh, not equally degraded. Uh, it, it's quite dangerous, but if you have a basic electrical engineering knowledge, you can get a lot of uh, video. For example, a lot of Facebook groups, the uh, people in this group disassemble batteries from all the electric cars and and produce power wall. Yeah, it, yeah, it's a, it's a kind of huge battery for home use. Uh, these power banks gathered by volunteers and then delivered also to the front line to our army forces because they also need additional power supplies. Um, but he said a problem is we don't have that many electric vehicles in, in Ukraine, at least compared to Western Europe. So we got in touch with some friends in Lithuania and Czech Republic and they managed to organize a shipment of several hundred of these batteries to Kiev, and so he's been working on that. So that's one approach. That's really interesting. And what other homemade solutions um, did you come across uh, that people in Ukraine are using? Well, one of them is range extension antennae. In fact, there's certain equipment you can buy uh, called GSM boosters or signal repeaters, and you can use that to increase the range from which your, your smartphone can connect to a cell tower. So these are obviously hot items to have in Ukraine right now, but these can cost three, four, five hundred dollars $500, and there are reportedly shortages of this type of equipment in Ukraine. But I also spoke with uh, some experts who are talking about homemade antennae, basically where you use a length of coaxial cable and then conductive materials, copper wire, Coca-Cola can, stuff like that, uh, with a little bit of understanding of, of how to put these things together. You can also find uh, tutorials online. 
And um, essentially, people are saying that in the right conditions, you can kind of triple the range of your cell phone. Essentially, normally your smartphone would reach a cell tower within about five kilometers in good conditions, but allow you to to reach a cell tower even 15 kilometers away. So that's kind of a big deal. That's incredible. It sounds it's incredibly engineeringly creative, isn't it? And and beyond cell towers, of course, um, you've also got satellite internet. So SpaceX's Starlink system which seems to now be being deployed in Ukraine. Could you just give us a heads up on, well, firstly, what Starlink is, but then also how it got to Ukraine? Sure. Well, we do know that it actually is being deployed in Ukraine. I've spoken with people who are starting to use it. I've spoken with people who are setting it up. Essentially, the story is that a senior minister in Ukraine's government put out a tweet at the beginning of hostilities asking Elon Musk for help. Elon Musk, the boss of SpaceX, has a a constellation of low-Earth orbit satellites called Starlink, and uh, the minister asked for help, could you send us terminals so that we could use these as a backup system? Musk obliged, and fairly large numbers of these have been sent to the country. Now, the Economist understands that there are probably several thousand of the terminals already in the country. I spoke with uh, a man, Stepan Veselovsky, who is the head of the Lviv IT cluster, which is essentially a business tech organization based in Lviv. And uh, he's been in direct contact with Elon Musk regarding this. And there's a partnership where he and his crew are receiving the equipment and actually helping set it up. So Elon Musk uh, enabled this service to Ukraine, like Starlink is for now working only in the United States and in Ukraine. So the Starlink company uh, sent some devices to Ukraine, to our Ministry of Digital Transformation, and now they are, you know, dividing these devices between, you know, critical infrastructure in Ukraine, but mostly in central part of Ukraine and eastern part of Ukraine, where, you know, the war is going on. But we are in the western part of Ukraine. Our, our aim now is to prepare everything for potential Russian invasion to our city. We are talking now about critical infrastructure, like hospitals, border control, security service in Ukraine, and all military institutions. They, they should have connection you know, between each other. Now, the thing about Starlink, of course, is that um, it's kind of impervious right now to attack from the enemy, essentially. So it will keep the internet running. Just give me a sense of how it works and sort of why it's a precious tool in Ukraine right now. Sure. Okay. So the Starlink terminals are devices. You can carry them. It's about the size of maybe a, a cake box, if you will. They typically need to be installed within line of sight of the sky, so on rooftops with an antenna system. And uh, they connect to satellites that are passing overhead quite rapidly in low Earth orbit. And so those satellites are moving fast. It connects to one, and then there's a handover. It connects to the next one and so forth. But because those satellites are in low Earth orbit, about 550 kilometers up, there's less latency than in a classic traditional satellite phone, which is connecting to a geostationary satellite almost 36,000 kilometers up. So they're faster. There must be risks of using this satellite internet system, I mean, in an active war zone. Absolutely. Essentially, the Starlink terminals emit what's known as a bright electromagnetic signature. I spoke with a colonel in Ukraine's army, and he said that we, we have these systems. 
We've installed them, but we haven't switched them on. We will only switch them on if absolutely needed because, indeed, they're bright targets for Russian radar-seeking missiles. So Starlink has its pluses and minuses, and there's clearly military uses. But will the people of Ukraine also be able to use it? I mean, it doesn't seem like enough internet access, if you know what I mean, for a country of that size. Yes, that's absolutely right. Starlink is never going to, at least in the short term or medium term, is never going to get the masses of tens of millions of Ukrainians online. It's a system which can keep critical infrastructure online. It can provide an outlet to the outside world for journalists, hospitals, rescue services, government agencies, and so forth. But it's, it's not going to get the masses online. That said, one of the fears that a number of experts have is that Russia has been making concerted efforts to take out communications infrastructure around the nuclear sites that they have overrun. This has led to uh, fears that what they might be doing is paving the way for an operation where fake news operation where they would say uh, there's been a radiation link or maybe they would say we've discovered a secret Ukrainian nuclear weapons program and use that to kind of justify their invasion or to create panic. And if you've got an information blackout in that nuclear site, that's problematic. It kind of puts the Russians in charge. And so hopefully the Starlink system would be able to make it more difficult for that kind of treachery to be pulled off successfully. And Ben, we've talked about the fact that the Starlink satellites are kind of currently out of reach of Russian hands. They, they can't be taken out, essentially. In the medium term, that's true. But in the long term, that might not be true anymore. You're absolutely right. On November 15th of last year, Russia attacked one of its own satellites, a defunct satellite, in kind of an extraordinary act of geopolitical messaging. So this was a missile going from Earth straight up, hit the satellite and, and blew it up. So they weren't just showing their technological prowess, they were also showing the world we are willing to take risks that other people aren't because obviously that shrapnel is up there. It's going to be up there for decades, and that's putting everyone's satellites at risk, including Russia's. And so essentially, yeah, the big question is, is this conflict going to escalate into space? And if it does and satellites start getting blown up, well, then we're getting into a whole new world of hurt. Ben, thank you very much. Thank you, Alok. You can read Ben's reporting on the technology of warfare in The Economist. And to hear firsthand how Ukraine is standing up to attack, listen to our exclusive interview with Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine. The Economist's editor-in-chief and Russia editor both travelled to Mr Zelensky's war room in Kyiv to hear what he had to say. To read their reporting and listen to their interviews, subscribe to The Economist. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer for a special introductory rate. Ukraine has around 15,000 amateur or ham radio operators. The government there has temporarily banned conventional ham transmissions so that amateur operators can be deployed on radios for military or intelligence units. They're using tried and tested technology, shortwave radio, that's been adapted to carry internet signals. Technologists have figured out a way to convert the digital data from smartphones and computers 
into analog signals that can be carried on shortwave radio transmissions. Radio receivers hundreds of kilometers away can use the same software to translate the signals back into text or images. This process is cumbersome. It takes several minutes, for example, to send a low resolution photograph. But in the event of an internet blackout, it could prove useful. The other, more traditional use for shortwave radio is emergency broadcasting, as the signals can travel long distances and are very difficult to block. During the Cold War, shortwave radio was one of the most popular ways of broadcasting information deep into enemy territory. Stations such as the BBC World Service and Voice of America would broadcast news, entertainment and music through the Iron Curtain. I'm Jamie Fly, president and CEO of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. Radio Free Europe is another of the stations that used to transmit its programs to the Soviet satellite states, while Radio Liberty used to broadcast to the Soviet Union. To this day, the organization operates in countries where the independent press is constrained. We were created in the wake of the Second World War at a time when there was significant concern about propaganda from government-sponsored outlets like the Soviet Union. And we were primarily, in our first several decades, providing news and information to audiences via radio broadcast, which was the primary means that many people got their news and information. Movie, radio, wolna Europa. Los wolnej Polski. So that was the content we were producing. Getting it across the Iron Curtain, we really relied on the most modern technology at the time with radio transmissions. And we had a series of transmitters in different parts of Europe that were used to reach into those countries and to broadcast through a variety of means, um, shortwave radio being the transmissions that could have this most significant reach into the target countries. Shortwave signals transmitted from radio masts in Europe bounce off the ionosphere, which is a layer of charged particles high in the Earth's atmosphere. The resulting sky wave can travel for thousands of kilometers, meaning broadcasters can sit safely in their own countries well beyond the reach of sensors, secret police or invading armies. It's hard to block shortwave signals, but that hasn't stopped governments from trying. It was a cat and mouse game at the time with governments trying to jam our signals, to block transmission, and our technicians on the other side having to constantly adjust our broadcast to try to get around the jamming. And then ultimately audiences having to play a role in searching for frequencies that we were broadcasting on that were not being blocked on a particular night by their government. It's a lot of effort to keep hunting for the correct frequency to listen to your news, but access to information has been vital for listeners. During multiple crises, um, 1956 in Hungary, 
with the Soviet invasion in 68, the Soviet intervention in Czechoslovakia in response to the Prague Spring. These were events that were highly sensitive topics for Czechoslovak media at the time. And so our broadcasts, done from afar, but at the time, often with contributions from sources that we could get reports from on the ground, they would have been essentially a lifeline to those audiences accurately describing what was happening when the government was in complete denial. There are parallels to today with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, where you have a Russian government that it denies it's even at war with Ukraine and refers to things as a special military operation with limited geographic scope. That would be the same sort of propaganda and lies that citizens of then Czechoslovakia would have been told about what was actually happening in their country as Soviet tanks rolled through the streets of Prague and other Czechoslovak towns and cities. So we were uh, playing a key role of just allowing people to know what was happening. And we played that role again and again over decades, culminating in the events of 1989 in much of Eastern Europe and things like the Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia. And even in 1991, in the dissolution of the Soviet Union, at all of those moments, our journalists were providing honest, factual information about what was happening and allowing citizens to then be empowered to make decisions about what they were willing to do to take a stand for their own fundamental freedoms. After 1991, Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty began to wind down their services. But there are places in the world where shortwave radio continues its vital role. We still do some shortwave broadcasts across parts of our coverage region. We have many markets where radio is still the primary way that people get news and information. Afghanistan is a perfect example where we reach roughly 45% of the Afghan audience over radio every week. Now, not all of those radio broadcasts are done via shortwave because there are other radio options when you can operate in-country like medium wave transmitters. The broadcasts don't travel the same distance as shortwave but the signal can often be stronger and clearer. And so in countries where we can have access to on-the-ground transmission, we often use medium-wave transmitters. And so we still are engaging with audiences via radio in different parts of the world. In Europe and in Russia, though, in recent years, people have really moved away from shortwave. We reduced our shortwave capabilities in Europe many years ago, primarily because we could get broadcasting access through medium wave in country or closer to the country. And then just the fundamental fact that audiences were moving away from radio to TV and now to digital platforms. But on the 3rd of March, in the aftermath of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the BBC World Service began nightly news broadcasts into Ukraine and parts of Russia via shortwave.
This is the BBC World Service. We're capturing Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty, on the other hand, are taking a different approach. Digital platforms are where we actually reach most of our audiences across the European countries that we operate in, as well as in Russia. So the challenge when you look at shortwave going forward in places like Europe uh, or Russia is, do people still have the ability to receive the signal? Uh, You can certainly get up on shortwave transmitters and you can reach in many of those countries, but you still need people who have the technology on the other side who can actually receive a shortwave signal. Most people don't have that capability through their car radios, which at this point is the way that most people would probably receive radio signals. And so that's the issue that we're examining as we look at different scenarios that may play out in the coming weeks and months during a war, during an internet crackdown inside Russia. What are the technologies that people have to receive news and information? And what are they likely to use during a crisis? Uh, How will they change their habits if they lose access to the internet, for instance? Will they revert to things like shortwave radio receivers? Are there even shortwave radio receivers that they can purchase easily in their country? And that's the the sort of homework that that we would do before we make any decisions about returning to shortwave in, in Russia and Europe. Though the technology has changed, the same basic principles apply to today's war in Ukraine as they did to events in the 20th century. We've been blocked in a variety of countries for many years, even before our experience in recent weeks in Russia, in places like Iran or Azerbaijan or Tajikistan or Turkmenistan. So we've had the ability to hone our tactics, our user experience, how to educate your audience about the tools in many other cases before what we're now experiencing in Russia. Over the last several months, because of a long-running legal dispute with the Kremlin, we knew that we might get to this point where our websites would be blocked. And so we actually put out explainer videos months in advance showing in a very simplistic way how someone can get a VPN, how they can use the VPN, how to use a mirror site, which is one of these changing URLs, how you find out what the new URL is that uh, may be out that day because the previous URL was blocked. These mirror sites are a way of getting around internet blockages. But like changing shortwave radio frequencies, the site's URL is constantly changing. Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty are trying to make it as simple as possible to find the correct link to access their content. The initial results are quite positive. While we did lose some of our audience after the websites were blocked, we have a strong signal that audiences have begun to adapt. A more simplistic tool that we've actually seen that appears to just be generated by our audience in recent weeks is printed instructions that was posted in a residential building in Moscow, just putting QR codes up on a piece of paper that go directly to our VPNs, that go directly to our mirror sites and our app as well, which has built in technology that allows people to circumvent the blockages. And that sign basically said, Independent information is available right now. Here is how you access it. And someone just had to hold up their cell phone, take a a photo of the QR code, and then they were taken directly to the pathway to get access to our information. And so that's 
a mix of very traditional, what was called maybe printed samizdat during the Cold War with modern technology. And so we, we see, again, audiences adapting and developing new ways to find avenues to interact with our content. Traditional media are using techniques from the past to ensure that trustworthy information can be accessed by those facing internet crackdowns. And, as Jamie Fly explained, it seems to be working. But can the flow of information into and out of war zones ever be cut off in the age of modern warfare? That's coming up. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Подаляк тут, президент тут, все мы тут, наши військові тут. Hello, my name is Olga. I'm from Ukraine, from Khmelnytsky city. I'm 31 years old and I'm Ukrainian blogger and I'm mom of... War. Or will there be not be a war? Imagine what we are feeling right now. <laughs> So uh, today I will tell you what happened. Uh, firstly, it has happened <laughs> because I didn't believe it. Ось це є те, що я хотів вам сказати. Слава Україні! Ukrainians are extremely online. Tanya Lockhart is a professor of digital media at Dublin City University. Her research focuses on Russia and Ukraine, and she's been telling me how social media has been used by Ukrainians during the war so far. They're using it to share and circulate information, receive information about anything from what's actually happening in terms of military movements and such, but also in terms of coordinating help, assistance, getting out of places that are no longer safe, staying in touch with each other and their families, but also keeping up with what the president and, and their local authorities are saying. But I think overall, they've made the best of social media as a kind of tool for sharing information and mobilizing support. From a military and intelligence angle, what kinds of information do you think can be reliably gathered from social media? Everybody has smartphones, so people are sharing a lot of stuff captured kind of in the field, in the wild. There's lots of photos, there's lots of videos, um, there's lots of just sort of people claiming things are happening in a particular location with or without evidence. And that, I think, is useful because obviously that can be used by military intelligence, both Ukrainian and Russian. But it also means that sometimes people aren't as careful about sharing certain things that maybe shouldn't be shared, such as showing troop movements in real time or showing where a particular shell fell in the city immediately after it happened, because that can help coordinate further shelling. 
So I think there's lots of opportunities to gather information, but it also is extremely important to verify that information. And here, I think in Ukraine, open source intelligence groups and individuals doing this kind of work have played a very important part as they try to actually validate the things they see. They try to geolocate videos and photos of, say, destroyed armor or shelling. And I think open source intelligence has become extremely more central to military activity and warfare, and I mean, over time, but especially we're seeing this now in Ukraine. Do you see this as like a war where you've never seen this much information coming from the ground so quickly from individuals who are so keenly affected? Would that be right? I would perhaps push back against this a little. Even the war in Syria, we had a lot of information, but perhaps either because of the geographic location or because of the language barrier, there wasn't necessarily as much attention to what was coming out of Syria, although the videos of bombings and, and cities being destroyed and people killed were equally horrific. I think, and I think I have the right to say this because I'm Ukrainian, I think Ukrainians are incredibly lucky that we are located in Europe, that the war happening in Ukraine is obviously affecting everybody who borders with Ukraine and all the other countries in Europe. That draws the attention more. I think Ukrainians have also been extremely good at putting out information, both verified and unverified. But you also have to remember, all of that is also being used by, by Russians for disinformation purposes and to shape their own agenda. I mean, they're, they're taking some of those photos and videos and presenting them as something entirely different. So that also contributes to, to the flow of information. Well, let, let's turn to Russia. Vladimir Putin is using censorship to control the narrative of the war in his country and blocking information from coming in, banning websites. What are some Russian citizens doing to get around the censorship from their government? Well, I mean, I think VPN use has become much more ubiquitous in Russia. Virtual private networks, which allow you to circumvent censorship. People are turning to Telegram because Telegram remains available in Russia and Telegram unlike other social media platforms, has very lax moderation policies. It prefers not to remove things. But what that means is, yes, it's not removing Russian disinformation, but it's also not removing all of those channels where Ukrainians are sharing what's happening. So you have all of those things on Telegram at the same time. And people want to find that information, they will. How much is the sort of Russian censorship actually affecting what people in Russia know? I mean, you've talked about VPNs being increasingly downloaded and people finding ways around it. But is that a small number of the population? Uh, you know, what about older citizens who perhaps aren't so familiar with internet technologies and ways to get around censorship? Well, I think there, there is certainly a generational divide there. I think there's also a divide in terms of do people want to know what's actually happening or do they prefer to remain you know, ignorant and kind of stay out of it, which I think has been a very popular sentiment. I think where it starts to change, even for people who may not use social media all that much or use them only sporadically or only watch state TV because there's no other TV available in Russia. I think when it starts to change for those people is when they become personally affected by the effects of Russia's war in Ukraine, either through economic terms, you know, when food disappears from stores and they can't buy sugar or bread, or when their son's conscripts go to war in Ukraine and die. It'll be interesting to see whether that breaks through to people who maybe aren't as susceptible to social media and, and the variety of information that's available there. We've talked about some of the services that are blocked in Russia. 
Would you mind going through the ones that have been banned? I mean, I know Facebook has been, but Telegram has not been. I mean, is there a reason why one has not been banned and one has been? I mean, we could make educated guesses as to why. I think the Russian state has had a kind of longstanding beef with Western social media platforms in particular because they think they're biased, they think they're out to get Russia, and that they're kind of against Russia writ large. So banning them really was kind of long on the books, and it's just happened much more quickly than I think people anticipated. I think the primary reason why Telegram remains open in Russia is because it's useful to to Russians and the Russian state. It's a way for them to see what their citizens are saying. It's a way for them to gather information about what's going on on the ground in Ukraine. It's also a way for them to spread their own propaganda and disinformation. It's kind of a dual-use technology, if we can put it that way. So I think that's why it's still open. I think maybe a couple of weeks ago or a bit before, there was some question about whether Telegram had reached some sort of agreement with the FSB to allow the agency to have some sort of snooping powers, essentially. Do you think that's plausible? I think anything is possible at this point. Telegram is so tight-lipped about its policies and about its principles. So we don't really know. Like, they haven't outright said, here's how we approach things. We also know that this kind of rhetoric shared by Russian law enforcement and secret services, it makes people doubt Telegram, which is what the Russian law enforcement wants. And it also kind of puts Telegram in this weird position where they don't want to say exactly what they are doing, but they're also not saying they're not doing it. So I think it's actually a really clever way of sort of putting Telegram on the spot. And then, you know, if Telegram says, no, no, we're not cooperating with the state, we're actually supporting Ukrainians, then that gives the FSB a pretext to to ban them. Just final question, you know, as as someone who studies Eastern European digital media, where do you think the sort of crackdowns in Russia on digital information, all of that sort of stuff are going to go as the war continues? I mean, do you think that there's going to be an escalation? Do you think that things will still still get worse? There's always room for things to get worse. What they're doing is they're trying to police online space inside Russia and to make sure that it's as much as possible sterilized from any independent views or information shared by independent actors. I think we can say with certainty that's going to get worse. I don't think Russia is going to like literally cut itself off from the global internet because despite their assurances that they say everything can work autonomously, we don't need to rely on the global internet, they are part of the world, right? They're, they're part of the global economy. So I think that we won't see complete isolation, but as independent media leave the country, as other citizens who don't agree with the state leave the country, and there's probably going to be further exodus of foreign internet companies and digital businesses from Russia as well. Tanya, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Keeping the flow of information open is vital during a war. For soldiers, for citizens, and for others around the world to bear witness and know where to send help. Given the way the modern internet is built, it's hard to imagine how Russia could completely cut Ukraine off from the rest of the world. But in a war, it's never wise to predict absolutes. So far, through remarkable inventiveness and tenacity, Ukrainians have kept their lines of communication working. Hopefully, their inventiveness will keep them connected for a long time to come. Thanks to Jamie Fly, Tanya Lockhart and The Economist's Benjamin Sutherland. 
And thank you for listening to Babbage. To keep up with all of our coverage of the war in Ukraine, go to our hub. That's economist.com slash Ukraine dash crisis. Babbage This Week was produced by Jason Hoskin and Hannah Fisher. Mixing and sound design was by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Cha, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.